Welcome back, everybody, to the Classic Rock Podcast. And coming up in this edition, the birth of a new supergroup, Elegant Weapons, are set to release a debut album, Horns for a Halo. It's coming out in May. Richie Faulkner of Judas Priest joins me to talk about the new band, how it all came together, the album, what to expect, who's going to be playing on the live tour. And we'll get an update as well on what's happening with the new album from Judas Priest, just how well that is progressing. Plus, I also have the pleasure, and it is always a pleasure, of talking to Dave Brock of Hawkwind, who are about to release album number 35 of theirs. It's called The Future Never Waits. And the achievement here is that even after six decades in this business, they still managed to surprise you with a new original-sounding album full of material, uh, prog by numbers or phoned in or whatever you want to call it. Not on this album, it isn't. And as well as the new album, we will look back on 50 years since the release of one of the seminal live albums of the 1970s. It's called The Space Ritual, of course, which was recorded over multiple dates. And indeed, when I was looking at this album, I found that it was the first ever live album recorded at the Brixton Academy, as you know it now. Uh, more on that a little bit later on, but we begin with an album anniversary. This month, it is literally 40 years ago as we speak, from the release of one of the biggest selling albums of the decade in the 1980s. And that's saying something when you consider what came out that uh, decade. Over 11 million copies and counting in the US, millions more around the world. And not only could we not get enough of the music, we couldn't get enough of those videos either. Now, the band really did embrace the whole video-making process in those early MTV days. A guy called Tim Newman produced, and his words to the band when they were putting these together. Uh, yeah, you guys, you're not much to look at, so we need to get some pretty women in here to sweeten up the story. And that's what they did at that windswept gas station in the L.A. county town of Little Rock. And they are, of course, ZZ Top. They gave us Eliminator, which was, by the way, going to be named Top Fuel. Or that was one of the album titles that was under review before Eliminator. The car, of course, the 1930s Ford Coupe. These days housed at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. Billy Gibbons does still own it. If you went to Donington in the 80s when ZZ Top played, you may remember seeing the car airlifted by helicopter into the festival. It wasn't the real one. It was actually a replica which they bought in, but it's still an incredible photograph that you can find of this helicopter flying overhead with this car attached to it. And now the critical reception of the time all round was, let's be honest, very, very good. And in the era of MTV, remember, not too many thought that ZZ Top would survive and thrive as they did. So, if you had to pick out one track, what would it be? Well, we're going to go with this. One of the first ZZ tracks to actually make use of synthesizers. The music video 
was a sequel to Gimme All Your Love. Remember the gas station worker? Well, he was promoted. He was now the valet meeting up with those women again. You can't remember it, can you? Better get out and watch them. They're still all over YouTube. And this is Sharp Dressed Man.
Absolutely flawless from start to finish. Every track on that album, ZZ Top's Eliminator. Now, coming up, Rishi Faulkner from Judas Priest talking about the brand new supergroup that he has curated. It is called Elegant Weapons. But firstly, before we get there, what do you know about Hawkwind? Apart from Silver Machine, hurry on sundown. When was the last time you listened to a Hawkwind album? Many moons ago, perhaps. So here's the thing. There's a brand new album out this April. It is called The Future Never Waits. And it is a fabulously crafted piece of music, which will maybe surprise a few of you. The two best tracks ran 10 minutes long each. Incredible pieces of work. Unfortunately, uh, we couldn't actually play those because if we did, we'd have time for nothing else. Uh, overall, though, it's very much the best of the recent output. And they've been exceptionally prolific since 2016, almost an album a year. And they've got a double live album coming out after this. And they've already started work on another album. He never stops. So time to check in with Dave Brock to talk about the new album. Plus, it's 50 years since the release of Space Ritual. We remember that. Plus, a few shared memories of fellow founding member Mick Slattery, who sadly passed away in recent weeks. And to take us there, here is a piece of music from The Future Never Waits. Now, just sit back, buckle up, relax, chill out, and enjoy this. After I'm gone, your Earth will be free to live out its miserable span of existence as one of my satellites. And that's how it's going to be.
upload your consciousness and leave your body at, at the, door. the door. What a brilliant start that is. And off we go on this on this fabulous trip. I've got to say, love the album uh, from, from start to finish. The Future Never Waits. 35th album. And then I decided, right, I'm going to count them all. And you've actually got, there's 95 official ones that I can count. 96 of you include the upcoming, um, the upcoming live album that you've got as well. Are you determined to make the 100? <laughs> oh, well, we're not far off because we've got another one that we've done just recently. <laughs> Is this the live one? No, no, another studio one, actually. We, we, I mean, when we finish one, we start mucking around and uh, practicing and coming up with new ideas and uh, and so far we've got 40 minutes worth so uh, getting back to this album in particular when you when you put it on for the first time and you, you perhaps arrive with a few preconceived ideas of, of what is coming up and then you get lost into this sprawling epic 10 minute journey of yeah. the of the future never waits what was the origin of that how did you do you come up with that was it always the plan to open with a a lengthy epic or was it something that developed as the ideas began to come to fruition well it actually we were uh, rehearsing and um we quite often record our rehearsals so uh we had our machines running and we recorded it uh, exactly how it was, actually. So uh, it's live. It was a bit longer, I might add. It was 15 minutes altogether, so we had to <laughs> cut it down to 10. But, uh, yeah, it was live. It's funny because, you know, when people you, you tell people, well, we're going to open with a 10-minute track and they'll sort of recoil and go, well, it's not possible, not, not yes. what you said, people won't listen. When you get to the end of that 10 minutes, you, you, you're in the midst of this, this journey into the album. You think, actually, I quite like this. Shame they didn't go on a bit longer. I mean, all our, I always regard albums as like uh, paintings in music, you know, mm. uh, where, I mean, you know, you put it on and you want to be taken on a journey. You don't want to think, oh, well, that track's finished. Oh, the next one's, what's that about? Oh, it's, you know, that only lasts three minutes, then there's another one. I mean, with us, we always, you know, normally do long tracks anyway. So, you know, you can actually jam on things and go off at weird tangents and um, make it interesting. Well, we have the the end and then uh, then we arrive at Aldous, Aldous Huxley. Huxley. <laughs> and, well, it's the 60th anniversary of his passing, actually, yeah. this year. And if you look at what was written about his... Uh, his later life works. They were viewed as a man who was meditating on the central problems of modern man and of the time. And he had this deep apprehension of the of the future of life on earth. When you were putting this together, you're obviously aware of the man and the author. Um, yeah. Is that where you are as well? Are you meditating here? Well, I mean, actually... The track before goes off into a, an LSD trip, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, basically, <laughs> uh, it goes into an LSD trip, which then goes on to uh, orders Huxley dying, where he actually, his wife, administers uh, LSD to yeah. him. 
and he passes away. And I mean, Magnus actually wrote the piece of music and played the keyboards on that. And uh, it, it's a lovely piece because as it dies away, as he dies, the, the actual lovely piano piece just gradually fades away and goes with him. Uh, it's quite uh, an interesting little piece of music, isn't it? <laughs> Coming up with things that are new and original and actually encouraging the listener to, to actually do more than just have a three-minute throwaway. You want to yeah. get them involved into a uh, concept yeah. and a story. Getting their handkerchiefs out, you mean, and wiping their eyes. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, it's like the next one, you've got to make it exhilarating, something totally different again. You seem to be at this creative zenith at the moment, almost, where you're, like you just said, you're coming up with, you've already got half another album done, half a new studio album done already. Do you ever suffer from writer's block or um, composer's block? <laughs> Well, you know, sometimes you do. Sometimes you, uh, you know, you sit there and you think, uh, I mean, we do actually record lots of pieces of music which we wipe off in the end. I mean, uh, at the end of the day, you know, if we if we write 20 numbers and actually only nine of them are really good, uh, I mean, that's what you're aiming for. I mean, sometimes you, you do things that aren't very good and you listen to it maybe a couple of months later and think, oh, dear, that's not very good. Um, yeah. Are you good at picking those things out? Because often it's the case with musicians or composers that they'll look at something and go, no, 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 don't like it, don't like it, get it off, get it off. <laughs> yeah. And there are so many stories down the years of maybe <laughs> a record company court. executive <laughs> that'll be sat there going, well, this is brilliant. And you're going, yeah. well, we're not using that, it's rubbish. No, 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 this is this is the one for me. So you're, it's easy for you, you find it, to just go, no, bin. Get rid of it. Yeah, um, I think so. It's, um, I don't know, it's just one of those things, uh, you know. I mean, we're living in a modern age and with te technology at your fingertips now with uh, vast amounts of incredible uh, machines that can get up uh, orchestras. I mean, uh, well, I'm talking about a computer, of course. Uh, you know, you can play a whole orchestra, you can play the viola, the violin, you can, you know, also... Uh, come up with loads of synthesizers and I mean there's hundreds and hundreds of fantastic instruments at your disposal so I mean you do go into all these different realms of uh, you know think well I can play the saxophone on uh, on the computer you know on the keyboard as it were uh, and so when you play the saxophone you're trying to make it sound like someone blowing a saxophone you know what i mean yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, not you know playing constantly because you've got to take a breath and so on so do um, you feel do you feel like you're still learning this yeah industry? absolutely uh yeah, i think you can go on learning it's like playing a guitar you can go on forever learning there's so many styles of playing uh you know i mean half the time i don't know the chords i play because i never learned to read music so, but it's just a never-ending uh, path that you can go down. It's it's really good fun, actually. After the journey with Aldous Huxley into his uh, <laughs> into his demise, you're then at that point where you think, right, okay, I, I'm I'm in the groove here. I know what's I know what's coming. I know I know what we're going to be expecting here with the next track. And then you're hit with this ten-minute epic, but this is so completely different. 
I'm, I'm sat there and almost immediately I'm in the midst of this sort of film noir soundtrack on some odyssey with some sort of 1940s L.A. private detective who's yeah, you know, walking with, down uh, a street. with a jazzy... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, funnily enough, it started off something totally different. Uh, we were actually doing a, a soundtrack because when you listen to a bit of the electronics in the background... Electronics are quite evil sounding and you've got all these weird voices and so on. The idea behind that, we were doing uh, a, a track about the Holodomor, which is uh, in Ukraine uh, in the uh, sort of 20s and 30s. Uh, you know, basically uh, a huge amount of the population starved because of... Uh, a f famine, yeah, caused by Stalin, by Stalin, you know, Stalin and yeah, so on. Yeah. Which we thought, oh, that, that's perhaps we'd do something about uh, that, so, and that's how it started off. But then uh, it was r quite a doom laden piece, and we thought, oh crikey, perhaps we better you know get out of this doom laden piece and go into something a bit more, uh, which is what we did, making it into a jazzy sort of track. <laughs> Yeah, so, it did. It it just sounded like it, it sounded like I'd been watching L.A. Confidential, that that, that film from a few years ago. I remember ago. that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. With Dan, Danny DeVito, who yeah. was superb in it. And then, so if you get out of that, the again, I love the opening line. Those sound clips that have blended in here. You get that opening line. Uh, after I'm gone, your earth will be left yes, to live right. out its miserable existence. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, is, is this you planning your exit here? <laughs> yeah, probably so. And uh, yes, we're talking about, then we go into a bit of philosophy, don't we? Yeah. About Rama was the seventh, about um, uh, all these religious sort of um people that come along who uh, have masses of followers and so on and trying to change the world and so on and normally you know it doesn't actually happen and basically that's what that's about as well this is rama isn't it the, yeah. and initially when i saw that I thought, well, we've got two choices here. This is either the alien starship from Arthur yeah. C. Clarke's Rendezvous yes. with Rama. Rendezvous with Rama, yeah. Wonderful book. <laughs> or it's the supreme being in Hinduism, and, and that is it, isn't it? Rama, the yeah. the uh, Hindu um, god, yeah. or deity, uh, yeah. if you like. But I, I found that that had more of um, an 80s new wave feel to it, I thought. Um, well, maybe so. I, it's just one of those things that um you know you come up with uh and um it all come together and uh the the, the actual keyboard solo which is like on a far feaser organ so it's got that old uh, like you say 80s feel to it uh which is tim our keyboard player played that bit in there and uh you know yeah like I say, it's using uh, all this equipment which you can go back in time with, can't you? Absolutely. And then, and then we have this marvellous climax where we, you're talking about learning to live today, the beginning, and then trapped in a modern age. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Again, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of subject matter there to, to get over and, and across. Do you, do you actually have that feeling that you, you're trapped inside a, an age well, we where are. you prefer not to be? Well, we are in a way, aren't we? I mean, we are trapped in, in a modern age and with technology, as it were, constantly advancing. 
and and so by uh, it, as it advances, the humans are supposed to advance with it, but they don't often. They uh, <laughs> lag. <laughs> yeah, or they you know, or else they go totally over the top and get so involved in it, it's they don't see what else is going on. They become uh, blinkered to everything else. So I mean, the, the other, the last track when you started talking about is about being cremated, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I I didn't want to go down that. Well, I mean, you know, that's <laughs> leave your body at the door, you know. Yeah, do you know what? Imagine if that is it. You get out there, and it's like, uh, come on! It's almost, it's almost Monty Python esque, isn't it? Where he's yeah. walking down the corridor, going crucifixion, yeah, crucifixion. That's right. yeah. What would you like? You know, yeah. uh, yeah. <laughs> At the door, one cross each, second door on the left, yeah, up the hill. Yes. <laughs> would you like a little tablet or would you like to be uh, shot? <laughs> this album would make a great show on its own. How much of it is going to be incorporated into the into the live performance? Uh, well, I mean, let's see. I mean, we've got one, two, three. I think we're doing about four tracks, actually. Uh, we do live now that we've been practising and um, I mean, we have to do old tracks, of course, you know, because I mean, the fans like to hear the old ones, but they also like to hear what else is going on. So we we try and merge one sort of like one of the old tracks in with a new one. And sometimes in the middle of an, uh, one of our older numbers, we can go into one of the new ones and come back out and go into the older one, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Merging it all. That is the new album. I've got to mention as well while we're here. This May is the 50th anniversary of maybe your most celebrated, certainly your highest charting album, Space Ritual, the live yeah. album uh, recorded at uh, Liverpool Stadium, which is no longer there. And the what was a, it was it was a disco discotheque, wasn't it at the time? The Brixton Sundown, obviously now the yeah. the Academy. Yeah. And Sunderland, uh, that was the other place that uh, uh, we played at, was uh, in Sunderland. I can't remember the venue, what, what it was called. Do you remember what it was called? The Ricardo. The Ricardo. The Ricardo Ballroom. Brilliant. Was it the Ricardo Ballroom in Sunderland? And so they, what happened was Cherry Red actually uh, managed to find all these live shows which hadn't been released. And uh, I think it was four different shows and put them all together as a, a box set. Oh, that's amazing. And um, the other thing I didn't know, as far as I can see, the live recording at the Brixton Academy or the Sundown, as it was with them, was yeah. the first live album that was ever recorded at that venue. Was yeah. It? Oh, and there are 50 <laughs> since. Do you ever go back and look at the reviews at the time? It just shows how different music journalism was then to what it is now. It was described as a mind-bending, trance-inducing, immersive experience available for your ears and your brain. I mean, you don't get reviews like that anymore, do you? Well, maybe not. But, I mean, when you think at the time, I mean, we had uh, a fantastic light show. We had uh, wind machines. We had, uh, you know, strobe lights, we had dry ice, we had pretty much everything going. But this was all leverage, wasn't it, off the, the back of the success that you had with with Silver yeah. Machine? Yeah. And and what, I mean, nowadays, you know, all, the, all this sort of stuff is run-of-the-mill, you know, people are used to it in a way. 
But, uh, you know, in the early 70s, it was uh, really, people go there, wow, you know, come out of a, they go into uh, the the gig to actually see the band and this whole sort of thing that happened there. And they come out and they've been on a giant trip somewhere, you know, to another universe. I mean, this is what you're trying to do. And they go, well, fantastic. Why has nobody tried to replicate this? Because when you you think about it, you're talking about this immersive experience, which which it was. It wasn't just about the music it was audio it was visual we had the yeah, poetry yeah. you had the dancers you had you talked about yeah. the lighting show this was a guy called Jonathan Smeaton wasn't it otherwise known that's as Liquid yeah. Len yeah that's right yeah who went on and by we, the uh, way to what a career he had I know I mean <laughs> uh, I saw him when was it like a couple of couple of years ago suddenly so popped up and uh, he was working. What well, he's done the presidential campaign in America. He was working with uh, Diana Ross. Yeah, and that was his time. last ever gig. Yeah. was with Diana yeah. Ross, doing these big, really big shows. Uh, I mean, he was telling me all about it. <laughs> oh crikey! You know? Yeah, he retired uh, after that. But then, when the and the other the other aspect about life for the music buying public at the at the time was the joy of picking up an album. And the that amazing uh, gatefold sleeve. Uh, Colin Poucher, Barney Bubbles. Barney Bubbles. Barney yeah, Bubbles. Amazing. What a great name! And uh, the did, were you aware of how the, the creation came about of that album cover, the encompassing of what Egyptology, uh, Pythagorean oh, yeah. theories, and and the topless dancer, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I used to actually, uh, you know, sleep on Barney's floor, actually, in my sleeping bag <laughs> yeah, in Notting Hill Gate because uh, I, I was living down in Devon, so every time I used to come to Notting Hill Gate, I used to have to find someone's uh, floor to fall asleep on, you know, and staying up late to about three o'clock in the morning uh, and, you know, watching Barney work away, come up with ideas and all these different characters that used to come and go then. Your great uh, quote about the about the album cover, you said, well, you know, it was one everybody owned at the time, you know, the gatefold sleeve. Uh, it was a good right, rolling yeah. mat. <laughs> yeah, you could open it up. Well, you could get lost in the sleeve, couldn't you? I mean, that was the joy of uh, having gatefold sleeves where you could just look and it was all blurry and you could... Uh, Drift away. <laughs> ah, absolutely, absolutely. Do you ever put this, put it on, and just sit and sort of marvel at the achievement? No. Well, I, I did listen to actually. I mean, I've listened to the masters of the Space Ritual, and it's uh, it's uh, different now actually because uh, when it was remixed, they've actually got uh, basically Simon King's drumming, Lemmy and me. Uh, you know, they've actually got a rhythm section uh, up a lot more than it was on the actual original album and the saxophone in the background more. And uh, our vocals are together. I was quite surprised. I thought, gosh, you know, uh, some of it sounds really good. I, I shouldn't be saying that in, in my... Uh, <laughs> it didn't sound that bad, you know, that I thought it would. <laughs> I love the, uh, the, the the quote from Lemmy at the time. And the, his actual quote, so the, in the freak scene, we're fucking huge. <laughs> you, and yeah. you just imagine that. But go, do you think, though, that now... The 
the album and the whole thing gets more credit than it did back then? Do you think people look at it now in a different way? Um, I don't know, really. I mean, you'll have to wait till it comes out and then they go to, then we'll find out, won't we? Because, I mean, there's plenty of... There, how many hours worth of... Uh, was it hours? An hour of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, every show was about two hours long and I think they got four shows there. Uh, so, the, I mean, I, I personally... <laughs> <laughs> when I listened to it, I only listened to bits and pieces. I didn't actually listen to all of it, you know. Uh, but uh, I suppose people will listen to one show at a time and uh, we'll have to wait and see, really, see what they make of it. As with some of the other albums of the time, see them more appreciated now as people have a, maybe a better understanding of what you were trying to do. Yeah. Uh, probably so. This is uh, as history. It's history now. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, here uh, I've got a got to make a quick mention of your your old friend Mick Slattery, who sadly um, passed away recently. Um, yeah. You two got together in what 1967. Fam uh, famous Cure. Uh, but yeah, we we that's right. We we toured with. Uh, yeah, we toured Holland in a, 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 a big circus tent. It's called the Mobile Freakout Tent. <laughs> what was going on in there then? Well, uh, a bit of psychedelic music, actually. I mean, that you know, we were just a B band. I, they used to have like maybe QB and the Blizzards or Golden Earring, some of these uh, Dutch bands that were uh, very well known. Uh, they were the top band, and basically we were the warm-up band. And then we toured all over Holland in a circus tent and um, and then we came back here and played in Middle Earth I think and a few other psychedelic places uh, and then the band split up and um, and then you know when I got Hawkwind back together again that's uh, with Mick because I've known Mick for a, a long period of time and um, he was I mean it was him John Harrison and me, basically, who got Hawkwind together. That, that was the very start of it, in 90, 
That was Dave Brock of Hawkwind talking to me earlier this week about the new album. It is called The Future Never Waits. And I think you got the gist, really, didn't you? That this is a pretty good album. And sometimes these things tend to slip out and you may be not aware that they're in existence unless you read a lot of the, the music press and there's a lot of product that comes out and sometimes you might miss it. Uh, April 28th, The Future Never Waits comes out. So um, we'll either buy it because it'll be on a vinyl with gatefold sleeves and all that glorious stuff or stream it wherever you stream. And now it is time for the main event of the evening. Richie Faulkner has enjoyed a whirlwind last dozen years or so. There he was, minding his own business, when a call comes in from one of heavy metal's most iconic bands, Judas Priest, offering him the gig. Now, some might have buckled under the significant weight of expectation, the inevitable comparisons that were going to come his way. He, though, took hold of the moment and proceeded to inject new life into what was perhaps becoming a band whose best days were maybe behind it. They put out two albums, the third is on the way, the last Firepower was frankly the best Judas Priest album since British Steel, which was rather ironically released the year that Richie was born. And now, comes the debut album from this new supergroup, Elegant Weapons. It is released in May, a brand new supergroup whose identity is firmly entrenched in the eras from which they all grew up in. And the result is uh, something of a rare treat. All the influences of the greats are here. But they are just influence. This is a really fresh modern album made for today and certainly not a rehash of anything that came through between the 80s up to today. Uh, so I caught up with Richie a couple of days ago at his home to talk about the album, the future plans, what is the status of Judas Priest's new album, World of Warcraft, obviously, painting, and Duran Duran. I think that just about covers it. To take us there, here is the debut single from Elegant Weapons. It is called Blind, Leading the Blind.
What was the reason behind the decision to put this new band, this this super group together? Well, it started, um, really the culminating point was COVID, you know, it gave, obviously it was a negative thing in many ways, but, it, you know, there were silver linings to be had. So one of them was I had a, a baby girl uh, in 2020, so I was able to be around for that. And the other one was I was able to get all these ideas that I'd had from, you know, the previous years, you know, song song starts and choruses and melodies and ideas uh, and demos and put them together to see if I had songs, an EP, an album, a band. I didn't know what, really. It was just a chance to put them all together uh, and see if there was anything there. Um, and as I did that, it kind of it was obvious to me that there was something and also something that stood on its own, really it had its own character. It stood on its own two legs stylistically and wasn't priest. You know, you could hear the DNA from priest and, you know, countless other bands in there, but you know, if it was another priest sounding, uh, batch of songs, it wouldn't have been worth it. You know, um, well, some so- collaborations, some super groups and, side projects, call them what you will, often turn out to be, let's be honest, a bit of a disappointment and they're soon discarded and and forgotten about. But this has the feel of anything but that. And you've very much delivered on this promise of carrying on the tradition of the greats, the Sabbaths, the Dios, etc., etc. I appreciate you saying that. I mean, mate, you're right. I mean, Maybe because when we have, you know, a group of musicians get together that we know our expectations are high. Maybe because it was me, the expectations were low. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know what it was. But, um, but yeah, it's definitely, you hit the nail on the head, really. It's, you know, coming from where I come from as a guitar player um, and the other guys in the band as well, uh, we're, we come from legacy bands and we were kind of selected by those legacy bands. Uh, and it's our, I see it as our responsibility, really, to take that sound and that legacy uh, and take it into the future. They're not going to be around forever. We know that. So if I can do something to extend that legacy beyond their lifespan, so to speak, in the band, then uh, I see that as my responsibility and my duty. So the personnel 
Um, if you look at the makeup of the of the band, and of course there are differences because of availabilities, etc., etc. Rex Brown, Scott, Ronnie, you, uh, Andy, Sneak, producing. It's obvious that we're we're going to get a great product here, even before you've you've heard it. But the the analogy that you use is is spot on. You uh, says even though it's got a lot of melody, which it has. It will still shake your bones, which it does. Well, that's the sort of music that I've grown up with, really. Um, heavier on the heavier side of the spectrum, but um, that isn't scared of putting a bit of melody in there. You know, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, even bands like Metallica. Um, I think melody is what grabs me first, you know, and uh, you can go around the world and play melodies and it's, it's picked up a lot quicker than say language might be, you know, if you don't speak the language in the song, mm. uh, it might take you a, a bit longer to pick it up, but melody is instantaneous. So it's always been uh, a priority really for me to have something that's melodic, but heavy. It's got groove. And obviously with people like, you know, Rex Brown and Scott Travis groove is in their bones too. And they've brought that from bands like Pantera and priest. Uh, and as we move on with the band with Christopher Williams and Davey Rimmer, you know, and Ronnie as well. They, they bring that legacy and that kind of pedigree and hopefully, as I said before, take it forward into the future. Yeah, and here's the, the real test. is might you wanting to keep the tradition going. What you haven't delivered is a 70s or 80s throwback album. This, this is a, an album of very much for 2023. I appreciate that as well. I mean, we, we are who we are. I'm 43 years old. I've been in Judas Priest for 13 years and I grew up in the 80s. You know, I'm not going to kind of put on a different hat just to sound uh, different. If You know, but there was also, uh, you know, uh, an ear towards the modern as well and what's happening today. So bringing out that retro um, part of what my DNA is, but making it sound relevant this year in 2023 was was, uh, you know, of the utmost importance, really. I didn't want to sound like a throwback. And it might do to some people, it might not do to others. But uh, fundamentally, it's who I am and who we are as musicians. And uh, why not be proud of that? Uh, people will look at the name of the band again. Well, where does that come from? But elegant we well, weapons, simple concept, because it's uh, a reference to the, the instruments that you play. It is, and it's also uh, a link to the lightsaber that Obi-Wan Kenobi gives to Luke Skywalker <laughs> because um, it's a relic almost from a bygone age. You know, as we move forward into the future, you know, into the modern era, different techniques, different instruments, you know, computers, AI, the guitar, you know, and, you know, the, the music, ah, sorry, the instruments that we used before are almost becoming you know, like relics, uh, like the lightsaber was. And I, I went through uh, an airport customs once and uh, I put the guitar on the customs conveyor belt and the lady behind there said, what is that? And I said, that's a guitar. And she said, what, a real one? And, I, <laughs> you know, I was kind of taken aback really, but it, it became, it was interesting that the lady hadn't seen a real guitar before and these things were becoming almost antiquated relics almost. So I wanted to kind of, it is about the guitar. They are the elegant weapons that we create music and words and, you know, some, you know, communication with. But I also didn't want them to go away. And that brought it home to me, really, that these elegant weapons 
from a bygone era, but let's kind of continue that legacy into the future, as I keep saying. Uh, you've talked about the, the different personnel on the, the road, Chris and, and Dave Rimmer, Ronnie Romero. Just staying with with Ronnie here for the moment, he, his voice perfectly suits the, the sound and the, the music. And he too has had this remarkable journey over the last 10 years since literally gets the call from um, Candice Knight, Richie Blackmore. On this album, he sounds the best that he's ever done. I think so. I think um, when we hear him sing Rainbow Songs, we obviously draw comparisons to Dio and, and people like that. Uh, when he sings this record, the first thing that struck me really was I could hear more of Ronnie Romero on this. Uh, and I think he'll agree with that too. You know, when it's a batch of original songs like this and you've got the influences that are on it, musically uh, I think it brings something else out in him that we haven't heard before and I hope you know the more we do together the more music we create and record and tour together that more of Ronnie Romero comes out I think he'll agree with that yeah we talked on the previous show actually he came on uh, when he released his solo album not that long ago and he said that what drew Richie and Candice to him was the fact that he had no rock star baggage wasn't in a drugs didn't drink much a very humble guy and he just loves the music and he just loves being in front of a microphone in a studio or on stage and he just loves singing and that comes across i think his schedule as well we all know ronnie for being one of the hardest working singers in rock these days he's always got something on the go and i don't think you have that much you know stuff on the go if you're not that dedicated uh, to what you do he, and it comes across in his voice as well you don't get that good if you're not that dedicated and I think you know it, it speaks for itself really the quality in its voice and his schedule and his dedication to his craft yeah now so much time and energy is, is being afforded to this this project the the fact uh, that you're already at work as well on, on a follow-up doing uh, work on that uh, there's some touring as well are you looking ahead here to a time post Judas Priest? I mean, it would be silly not to, really. Um, when I joined the band, I remember Glenn Tipton talking to me about, you know, I, I joined Judas Priest on the farewell tour. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, fast forward 13 years, we're still here. Thank goodness. I mean, I'm, I'm so grateful Priest is still around, you know, with me or without me in it, I would have been grateful for that, that they're still out there making music and touring touring the world. Um, but at the time, I would have been silly not to consider, based on what Glenn was saying and the tour that I joined on, it would have been silly really not to consider doing something after Priest. Um, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to kind of jump off, you know, get a get a gig in the big band and then use that springboard to six months later or a year later, do my own band I didn't want to do that they gave me you know the dedication and the commitment to welcome me in as did the fans um so after 10 years at the time it was it made sense to put something out on this you know on the side that could continue after priest and it wouldn't be seen as me just riding coattails after six months so I felt like I put a good amount of time in so the fans and the followers wouldn't see it as that it's just the right time you know 
How difficult was it when you were going through the, the production process and putting the album together not to slip into making an album which replicated Judas Priest? Did you ever get to a point where you thought, right, hang on, no, can't do that. It's too Priest. We have to come back a bit. It's a good question. Um, not really. Uh, there's a couple of moments on the album which hint at that flavour. Um you know, and I thought, you know, is it too priest? Is it too priesty? Uh, but at the end of the day, that's part of the DNA. Um, that's part of where I come from. How can how can it not be an influence in some way when I've been writing and mm -hmm. uh, recording and playing live with the band for almost thirteen years? So it was it was an organic thing. It was a good song at the end of the day in in this in this regard. Um, so I left it on there. Um, other than that, no, I, I didn't. It it was definitely a bit more bluesy, a bit more groove orientated. Um, and so, it, again, it stood on its own two legs and had its own character, uh, and I went with it. What were the high points on the, the album for you? I mean, I've listened through a few times. The choice of Blind Beating the Blind was a great choice, actually, as the as the debut single. There's an incredible conclusion to this album, Ghost of You, the title track, Horns of a Halo, the, uh, the cover version of... Uh, UFOs lights out, and then you get this sprawling epic of White Horse. Yeah, I mean, everything has its own character, again, as I said, but it's got uh, like a DNA that binds all the songs together in some way. Um, I, I like Ghost of You. I think it might be surprising for some people to hear a song like that, um, and it conjures up uh, images of smoky bars and pianos and a singer, you know, somewhere like New Orleans or something like that, you know, yeah, yeah. down-tuned piano. Um, so there, there are songs like that, which might be a bit surprising. And then there's other songs, you know, uh, I think Horns for a Halo, the initial riff that I came up with, I think the working title for it was Iomi, which was, you know, obviously <laughs> a reference to Tony Iommi from Black Sabbath. Um, so there's stuff that people... You interviewed him, by the way, didn't you? Say again? You interviewed him. I did, yeah. And uh, I think I must have stolen a riff, uh, <laughs> you know, subliminally from him. But uh, again, it's that thing of these are my influences. I wear them on my sleeve and I'm proud of them. So I love moments like that on the record as well. The other the, the other point worth mentioning here, and, and again, sometimes others will slip over into, well, let's be honest, a straight copy. But your influences, you know, Schenker Murray, uh, James Hetfield, uh, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Zach Wilde. I mean, the influences remain just influences. There may be a presence there, but it's an appreciation and nothing else. Massive appreciation. They're, they're the guys, I mean, I've got hundreds of favourite guitar players and hundreds of influences, but they're, they're the, the, the main ones. They're the top five or six of players that really influenced me over the years. Um and then hopefully I can combine all of those in my own style and people can listen to this record and over the years say, oh, that's Richie. And they can, they can pick up my uh, influence in their playing or they can pick up my sound. That, that's the goal, really. It's always been a challenge for me to, uh, to have my own sound. Uh, but hopefully, you know, I can uh, achieve that with records like this. Now, I mentioned Ronnie earlier on just having this incredible journey over the last decade. Yours is no less incredible. In this 11 years since your first performance with Priest, which was what, May the 25th, 
2011. That was on American Idol. What What do you remember about that day, right, that you woke up and you found that uh, they were trying to get in touch with you? I mean, obviously, you know, you went through the process of deleting emails <laughs> because you thought it was cranks getting in touch, trying to get in touch with you, or it was junk email. But what do you remember about the the moment? That's a great question. I mean, it was surreal, really, the situation I was in um, and the situation I didn't know at the time what I was about to be in. I mean, it changed my life. It changed my life around. Uh, I think I had to borrow the train fare off of my mother <laughs> to go up to meet Glenn and Rob and go through the quote unquote audition process, you know. So it, it was just a, a life changing thing. Um, but I knew. I had a chance, if you know what I mean. I wasn't arrogant about it, but I was confident and I knew that I could do this um, and I gave it my everything, you know, and I just remember thinking, if this is real, a chance like this doesn't come along twice in a lifetime. So I had to give it my all um, and went from there, really. And the rest is a blur. I remember when Glenn gave me the gig and it was, it was about a week and a half, two weeks later that I went back to Glenn's and he, he gave me the gig. And uh, But I had to be quiet for about a month until we announced it. So I couldn't tell anyone. So, um, you know, you've got a life change. But they experience. must have noticed a change in you after that. I mean, because you must have been walking around with a grin. Uh, you must have been, you must have been feeling literally on top of the world. Absolutely. Um, it was an opportunity and a big chance. Um, and I knew what that duty meant to millions of people around the world. You know, I knew what priests meant and means today. I knew what they stand for in heavy metal. So it wasn't just playing guitar in a band. It was flying the flag for Judas Priest. I mean, that's a massive deal. So it was quite intimidating. And as I've said before, it, it was a challenge. Um, but some things, some challenges you've got to take. Yeah. I mean, there was the immediate acknowledgement, and Rob said this on many occasions, that you gave everybody this kick up at the backside. You were responsible for the continuation of the band. Uh, you infused them immediately with this resurgence of fresh blood and, and energy. How did hearing all those comments and reading those comments actually make you feel when you saw it? And did it put any more pressure on you? Um. I think I've always said this, there's, there's five guys in the band, you know, uh, and I always see it like a wheel, you know, we're, we're the spokes in that wheel and, uh, we make it go round. And if you take one of those guys out, it doesn't, doesn't roll. So, I mean, I've always been grateful to Rob for saying that, but I don't think he's given himself much enough credit either. You know, after 50 years, uh, genre defining iconic frontman and, and heavy metal band, um, you know, if I came in and gave them a different dynamic and it carried on, then fantastic. But they're, they're all responsible for that as well. I, I want to mention uh, Firepower because you, you've done Redeemer of Souls. And I think the best review that I read, it's like Judas Priest woke up one day and remembered how to be the greatest heavy metal band on the planet. And they <laughs> did. And they are. <laughs> that's, a, that's a brilliant review. That's, that's a very kind review. I mean... When, you, when you're writing albums, you always, uh, you know, do them to the best of your ability at the time. You know, how can we make it sound better? How can we play better? How can we write better songs, better solos, better vocals, whatever it may be? And um, Redeemer of Souls and Firepower are no different in that regard. You know, 
you go from redeemer to firepower how can we make it better how can we do this one better whatever better means you know um and it really connected with a lot of people around the world i think we played nine songs from that record on that tour which is unheard of really we we sometimes i mean i know on redeemer we played maybe three you play too many song new songs and you lose the audience but on that one it made such a connection that we could play a lot more songs and people were singing them back to us it was for me it was just an incredible experience two of the songs on those it's funny isn't it what you're drawn to most never the heroes and spectre I mean, nobody was expecting either of those songs on that album, and yet those two, well, for me, stood out. And yet they're the perhaps the least heavy metal of of all the tracks on that album. Yeah, you're right. Especially "Never the Heroes" is a bit more of a mid-paced sort of rocker, um, but it had a really poignant message, you know, and it really lent itself to that experience. Um, and it just it lined up perfectly. The message of the song, the way the song sounded. We needed a song that was that kind of dynamic for the record. Um, and it was one of those records where everything aligned. Even the season we were at was spring. It was beautiful. You know, we'd go out for walks every morning, me and Andy Sneap. Uh, the whole experience was a fantastic one. And I said at the time, you know, I don't think I'll ever make a record that I'd enjoy as much as that experience. You know, it, it was one that will stick in my mind forever.
So everything's going forward. You've got a really positive environment. You've moved to Nashville. You've celebrated the birth of your first child. And then you're literally, your world comes crashing down. It's September 26, 2021, when you literally lose your life on stage at the Ladder Than Life Festival in Kentucky after suffering that aortic aneurysm. Four blood transfusions. Your doctors told your partner to get your family there because they didn't think you would make it. How have the events of that time altered your view on life now? Well, you know, when you when you hear someone say it back to you like that, it really becomes quite a quite an ordeal. You know, I think when you're going through it, you go through it and you you do what you do to get through it. You know, um, sometimes you don't realize how much of a a big deal it was. Um, but I think from from a, a life's view viewpoint um i think it definitely kind of makes you realize it could all change tomorrow you know uh, it's an obvious thing to say but when you have those sort of experiences it, it really brings it home to you um so all this stuff that i'm doing you know i think i was back out on the road with priest the following march i had to go in again for another open heart surgery last august and then two months later we were out on the road again this record with elegant weapons the new priest record that we're working on i think it gives you you've got to get on with it you've got to do what you do because you might not be here tomorrow um and that's a very real thing you know you might be up there playing painkiller one day uh and then the next minute you're not and uh so do what you do do as much as you can and enjoy life as much as you can because you might not be around tomorrow you know but in a use it in a positive way rather than it being down Negative. in the dumps about it. Um, you made a very interesting observation about that night, and it was that Judas Priest were not the headline act. It was Metallica. And you said, had you been headlining, and that had been like a 90-minute or 120-minute show, it's likely you might not have made it off the stage. I'd have carried on, for sure. We don't know. I, I didn't know what it was. Um and luckily, as you said, we had a short set, so that was the last song. Um, if we had another half an hour, 40 minutes up there, I would have carried on not knowing what it was, and I would have, I would have gone down and not come up. So there was a, a, a long list of things lining up that night, just freaky, some of them, that uh, saved my life. You know, some decisions and just some of those twists of fate that if it had happened any other way, I wouldn't be here talking to you now. So I'm a very lucky guy. Now, a few things that people might not know about you, the person, everybody knows about how great a player you are. But they might not know that you're quite heavily into graphic art and painting as well. I mean, rock music has long had this tradition which has become more prevalent in recent years. And we're seeing rocks like well, Bob Dylan, Ronnie Wood, Rick Allen. Uh, so are we, are we close to any Faulkner art shows coming up? <laughs> 
Well, it's not traditional. It's not traditional painting. I actually paint. It's a bit of a nerd category, but I paint Warhammer forty k, which is little little uh, space marines, basically uh, little soldiers, uh, and we play war games with them. And it's not the most it's not the most cool <laughs> thing in the world, but that's what we love doing. Me and a group of friends, uh, we get together and we play those sort of war games. Uh, but you have to paint them up. You have to paint up the figures, and I love doing that. You can you can put like a soundtrack on, like the Blade Track Sound Runner. Uh, Blade Runner soundtrack, um, and just lose yourself in a, in another world, which kind of has got parallels to music. You know, you can put on your favorite record and lose yourself in it. Um, so I don't think there's any, uh, you know, art exhibitions coming up, but uh, you never know. <laughs> and your your guilty music pleasure uh, is it is it still Duran Duran? I've got tons of them. Ultravox, Duran Duran. <laughs> We've all got them, and anyone that says they haven't. Hasn't is lying. Well, they're lying. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I love the stuff from the eighties. You know, Roxy music. I'm a big Brian Adams fan. Um, I mean, Gary Oldman. As you said, didn't somebody heavy metal up um, or rock up Duran Duran's Ordinary World? I mean, I'm sure they did. What a fantastic song that is. I mean, I mean, it goes in. We've all got influences like that, and it comes out. You know, when I when I put on a, a Marshall on Eleven and a Flying V and take those influences, they, they kind of get distilled and come out a different way. So it doesn't come out sounding like Duran Duran, but there's definitely influences in there, like chord changes and progressions and melodies that can't help but come out in, in a sort of uh, indirect way, for sure. And your father-in-law, guitar legend, George Lynch. <laughs> now, do you two, I mean, this this must be, this is like a marriage made in heaven, isn't it? I mean, do you two ever get together and jam or rock out or just, you know, shut the door, put the CDs on, have a few beers? I mean, it must be great to sit in there and listen to all war stories. Without a doubt. I mean, George is a great laugh, you know, uh, and he's a great guitar player and I can learn a lot from George. You know, he's that unorthodox sort of player that you know is him straight away i remember the first time he came over to the house we sat down for hours and talked about our favorite guitar players and we ended up with eric johnson we, we watched and listened to some eric johnson and we both looked at each other depressed because eric johnson was so good you know uh, and is so good so we're we're both guitar fans and music fans and we have got together a couple of times and jammed in a studio but just for fun really um, I did see a piece, and I, I, I don't know whether this was was joking or not, where he said that he'd love to uh, he'd love to play with Judas Priest. Oh, I mean, I think he'd be great. I think he'd be great playing with Priest. <laughs> he, uh, as I said, he's got that unorthodox style of playing, uh, which not the same as Glenn, but in the same manner as Glenn Tipton. You know, it's it's instantly recognisable. Uh, I think he'd be a great addition to Priest. Obviously, it didn't work out that way, but um, he's a big <laughs> Priest fan. So, uh, you know, we, he sends me songs all the time that he's written that are heavily influenced by Priest. And he says, uh, if you want to pay me publishing, you can do that. You know, obviously, all in jest. But, um, yeah, no, he's a big Priest fan. And, uh, you know, we all are, really. And lastly, um, just a, a quick update uh, with the, the new Judas Priest album. Uh, how far are you away from release? I mean, it is, it's just Rob who's got to finish the vocals. Yeah, it's still Rob. Me and Andy Sneak flew out to Phoenix a few weeks ago and worked with Rob on the vocals, and they're sounding stellar, as only the metal god can uh, can do. 
Um, they're not quite finished yet. So once we've done the, the vocals, it needs to be mixed and mastered. And then we need to do the artwork and stuff. So there's, I mean, recording wise, there's only the vocals to go. But as we know, there's quite a process in putting a, a record package together. But, um, you know, it's not that far off, I don't think. We'll see a Priest record in the future very soon. And uh, is there any chance that the people of good old UK are actually going to see Judas Priest any time? Oh, without a it's doubt. It's been a long old time. It has been a long old time. We all know why. And it's, it's, you know, yeah, it's yeah, been yeah. upsetting for everyone, including us. Um, so as soon as we can get back to the UK, I know we've been talking with management about options to do that. Um, and as soon as we can get back there, we will be. And we've missed the UK. We haven't been back there. We haven't been in the UK since 2015, I don't think. So it's uh, it's too long, and uh, we look forward to seeing you all very soon. Well, my thanks to Richie Faulkner. Elegant weapons release horns up for a halo this May, and there is a new track from the album released on April the 14th. It is called Do or Die, so keep an eye out for that. All I can say, having listened to the album over the last week, is that it, it does grow significantly, and it's one of those, you know, when every time you, you put an album on, you come away thinking, well, that's my favourite track. And then when you play it again, it's like, actually, no, I think I prefer this one. And we did mention Ronnie Romero's voice, and it is very different to, to what you've heard on, certainly with Rainbow, and MSG still has all the power, still has all the range, but there is a slightly different tone, and it is easily his best work so far. And that brings us just about to the end of this show. But uh, just before we go, anybody brave enough to put together a list called the 100 Greatest Heavy Metal Songs of All Time will obviously have to be dealing with the inevitable fallout. Rolling Stone has again curated one of these, and I don't know whether you've seen it, uh, but there is certainly an awful lot up for discussion here, certainly about what is included in there, and inevitably what is missed out. But also what the definition of heavy metal is. Is Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple heavy metal? Is uh, Kiss Me Deadly by Lita Ford? Is that heavy metal? What about Round and Round by Rat? A couple of the tracks from Motley Crue also in there. But we get to the, the top ten. If you know what it is, then sorry about that. You may leave the room now. Uh, if not, here's what they put in the top ten. Uh, Run to the Hills, Iron Maiden, at number ten. Holy Diver by Dio at nine. Raining Blood by Slayer at eight. Iron Man by Black Sabbath, seven. Crazy Train is next by Ozzy. Warp Pigs by Sabbath. I think you get the gist of what they're doing here. Uh, then at number four of the 100 greatest heavy metal songs of all time, Breaking the Law by Judas Priest. Really? Not Victim of Changes? Not any other of the incredible catalogue of, of heavy metal tracks as they put out, Breaking the Law. Certainly Breaking the Law, the most successful single. Uh, then the uh, top three, Ace of Spades, no arguments there. Master of Puppets in number two, and what was the number one of the greatest heavy metal song of all time? 
Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath. Interestingly, one Zeppelin song in that top 100. And that goes back to the Led Zeppelin heavy metal. That was the Immigrant song was in at uh, number 18. Anyway, to conclude proceedings today, a track from an artist that was in there, but it's not that particular track. It is from Ronnie James Dio. It is from Holy Diver, but it isn't Holy Diver. It is this, Rainbow in the Dark. Thank you very much for joining us on this edition. My thanks as well to Dave Brock and to Richie Faulkner for coming on to the show to talk about their new albums. From me, Tim Capel, till next time, bye-bye for now, and uh, over to you, Ronnie.